when Jesus prayed for us in the garden, he said that we were in the world, but we were not of it. As we've been looking at Peter's first letter, we've seen that Peter's told us that we're strangers and aliens here, sojourners making our way home. It's juxtaposed against the fact that when Jesus appeared, he appeared saying that the kingdom of God is at hand. And from the very beginning, there's been a propensity to misunderstanding that kingdom due partly to the world, the influence of the world, because we've never seen a kingdom like this one before, a kingdom that's not of this world. And, and so we have this propensity to try to make it like one of the kingdoms of the world. Partly due to the flesh, because as we saw last week, curved in on ourselves, we have on our, our own agendas. And sometimes we think we can use God to our purposes. And partly due to the devil, because as Peter will tell us later in the letter, that he roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And even after the resurrection, the disciples were asking Jesus, Lord, is it this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? After Constantine, the church grew in worldly power and it came to confuse that power with the power of the kingdom, not of this world. And in some instances, she came to think that the reign of Christ could be extended by law or by the coercion of the sword. And whenever the church thinks that, there's a built-in failure. Because once we think that we can enact laws to save us, people stop walking by the Spirit and start walking according to the flesh. And we come to unwittingly make a distinction between those sins that we will condemn and sins which, though no less heinous to God, are acceptable to us because they aid us in our comfort. And we easily justify them because they've been the product of a Christian society. The failure of the Roman church's attempt to do so came to a breaking point in the 15th century led to the Reformation. But it seems that we never learn. And so the temporary suspension of England's monarchy during the glorious revolution that, pro that promised to usher in the kingdom of God or something close to it led to a hellscape that had people begging for the monarchy's return. And the well-intentioned attempts of the Pilgrim Fathers in Plymouth gave way to a legalism that fed the flesh, which in turn eventually led to the godlessness that pervades New England even to this day. What's the relationship between the kingdom of God and the church and the world? Well, in some ways, that's what Peter's first letter is all about, but uh, he begins in a few verses here to lay the groundwork for that relationship. I'm reading today from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 
through 25. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been begotten again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. And our Father, we we thank you in our own lives that however it came or uh, through whomever it came, your word was preached to us. And that word had the power to cause us to be begotten again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And we've been begotten again by imperishable seed. And Father, it is your plan that your people will match the character of your kingdom, which is a kingdom that is forever. So, Father, give us wisdom to walk in the way you call us as we live as sojourners in this world, which we are in, but not of. To proclaim the excellencies of you, O Lord, who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And so, Father, be used by you to be the path that brings that word, that imperishable seed, which has the power to beget people again to eternal life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What's the relationship between the church, uh, the kingdom of God, and the world? Well, let me state it succinctly, and then I'll unpack it. The church is made up of the subjects of the kingdom of God. And God has placed his church, we've seen in Peter, in a perpetual exile until the end of the age to be a sign of that kingdom. The kingdom's power is found not in compulsion, but in love. Most of the kingdoms of the world, their power is found in compulsion the ability to impose their will upon others by force. But the kingdom's power is found not in compulsion, but in love. And Peter says, now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have a sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. No one ever became a Christian because he was threatened with harm or penalty. For not being so. A person may pretend to be a Christian to avoid harm or penalty, but no one can really come to Christ through an external compulsion. Likewise, no one ever gives up his sin or her sin because he or she is threatened with harm or penalty. Now, the external behavior may be suppressed, but the sin will still be there in the heart, in the mind, 
waiting for an opportunity to evade the law. And in the kingdoms of the world, the externals are all that matter. You know, in a few months, if you haven't done it already, you'll be filling out your tax forms. You know that the government doesn't care at all about how you feel about paying your taxes. It doesn't care whether you do it with animus or anger, whether you hate them when you do it, whether you're happy about it, it doesn't care. The only thing it cares about is your external compliance. In the kingdoms of the world, the externals are all that matters. But it's not all that matters to God. In fact, it's not what matters the most. Christ died not merely to change our behaviors. Force could do that. External compulsion could do that. As though our sin were so trite and just sat on the surface. But he died to renew our hearts and our lives. Isn't that true for you? Think about what brought you to faith in Christ. Was it, was it threat or external compulsion? Or was it because your heart was moved to repentance that you came to see the depth of your own sin and in spite of it you saw the grace of God for you and the love of God for you and your heart was melted? Peter writes, now that you've purified yourself, some of your Bibles may say, now that you've purified your souls, and, but what Peter has in mind here is one's whole life. The, 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 the word that Peter uses here, whether you translate it yourselves or your souls, is the same word that Jesus used when he said that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give up his life as a ransom for many. Now that you've purified your lives, the whole of your being, and then he uses a purpose clause. He says, for the purpose of an unfeigned brotherly love, love one another from the heart. The reality of the kingdom, Peter tells us, is made manifest in genuine love. Right? Jesus told us that in John chapter 13, when he was with his disciples, just before he went to the cross, he said, love one another as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Maybe as you think about that, you wonder, how, how would that be that people would know that we're the disciples of Jesus if we love one another? You know, Peter was there as, as Jesus spoke those words. I think it's the basis of what Peter says here. Let me remind you that Peter wrote this letter uh, to those who were scattered, the elect strangers, the sojourners, the aliens in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. All of these regions, which were under the umbrella now, of the Roman Empire, but they were all different. They all saw themselves as individual ethnic people groups. You know, we saw uh, last week in verse 17 of chapter 1 that we call on God as a Father who is impartial. People naturally love their natural own. 
the people of their own family, of their own nationality, of their own ethnicity, of their own language, of their own customs. But the church of Jesus transcends those nationalistic, those ethnic, those cultural lines. In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, the apostle John uh, sees this vision of, of crowds pushing in, as it were, on the, th on the throne of God, crying out, worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And Peter writes, since you've purified yourselves, your souls, your lives, for a sincere brother love, love one another unhypocritically, unfeignedly. When we get to uh, chapter 4, Peter is going to tell us there, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Um, what's hospitality? Um, you know, I think that most of us, if we would to think of hospitality, would say, well, that's, you know, having people over for dinner or coffee or tea. We open our homes, and that certainly is a hospitable act. But the word that's used in the New Testament uh, means a great deal more than you probably think. The word that we translate uh, hospitality is the word philozenos, literally a lover of strangers, a lover of people who are not like you. Um, I don't know why it is in the strange thing, uh, the English language that we've taken that word and we've made an English word out of it, but we flipped it. Instead of a philozenos, we talk about a xenophile, somebody who loves strangers. The, the antonym of that would be a xenophobe, somebody who's afraid of strangers. And what Peter's talking about here, why that witness is so powerful, is because there's love for brothers uh, who are not like us, and that bears witness to the reality of the kingdom, of this kingdom, the citizens of which are scattered throughout the nations, and the citizenship of that kingdom transcends and supersedes all natural barriers and boundaries. Now, why is that so important? Because we as Jesus' disciples are called to an even more difficult love. We're called to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. We have no chance of doing that if we can't love one another. We have no chance of doing that if we can't love others who belong to Christ who are not like us. And so the New Testament calls us to this love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of how different they are from us. Living as subjects of the kingdom means that we live as a nation within the nations to which we have been scattered and in which we live. And Peter will write later, and we'll get to it and look at it in more detail, uh, Lord willing, in the weeks to come. He will write to the church, but you, 
you, church scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, you, church scattered throughout the world, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Who's the holy nation? Is it Great Britain? Is it the nations of Europe? Is it the United States? The holy nation is the church of Jesus Christ. Strangers in the world scattered among the nations. You know, a few weeks ago as we, as we started 1 Peter, I made the uh, statement that there's no such thing as a Christian nation. Um, if you've been raised in the United States, particularly since the 1950s, those words may have sounded strange to you. Let me tell you what I don't mean by that. I don't mean that there can't be a nation that has Christians in it. Well, of course there can. That's exactly what Peter envisions here, that, that God's people, his holy nation, are now scattered throughout the nations of the world, the kingdoms of this world. Those who are the citizens of the kingdom not of this world are scattered throughout the kingdoms of this world. Nor do I mean that it's impossible for a large number of people to be Christians. That could happen in God's providence. Nor do I mean that Christians may not exert an influence for good in the nations in which they are exiled. We may do that, and we should if we're able to. Joseph, Daniel, Nehemiah, all serve the nations that God sent them to. But Joseph asked that when they came out of that land, that his bones be carried out with them. Though I'm sure he had a royal burial in Egypt owing to his status, because he was only a sojourner there, no matter what he did, no matter what good influence he brought, Egypt would never be the promised land that he was hoping for. Daniel became chief of Babylon's Magi. But for all the good that Daniel did, never did he think that Babylon could become Jerusalem. The kingdom that we are citizens of is a kingdom not of this world, and no earthly kingdom can operate according to the ethics of the kingdom not of this world. Uh, even if every person in an earthly nation were Christian, that nation could not become the kingdom of God. There is an inherent incompatibility between the kingdom of God and the earthly kingdoms. In fact, um, in the coming weeks when we get to it, and we'll look at uh, Daniel chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 15, that the aim of the kingdom of God is to destroy every earthly kingdom. Why is that? Because they're incompatible. In an earthly kingdom which tries to be the kingdom of God, either corrupts it by twisting or only partially adopting that kingdom's ethics, or it will commit geopolitical suicide and be destroyed by the principles of that kingdom. 
And in the end, that's exactly what will happen. Only one kingdom or the other will be able to stand, the kingdoms of the world or the kingdom of God. Um, how many of you have been to the Statue of Liberty? I lived outside of New York, right outside of New York, across the river from the Statue of Liberty. I've never been there. My wife has been there. My son and daughter-in-law have been there. Everybody's been there but me, but I've seen pictures of it. There's a poem at the base of the Statue of Liberty. It's entitled The New Colossus by Emma Lazarus. You know one line of it. It is uh, oftentimes quoted, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to be free. Did you ever read the whole of the poem? It's not long. Let me read it for you. Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea wash sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name, mother of exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air bridge harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. It's a stirring and beautiful poem. But the U.S. cannot mean it. No nation on earth can mean it. We may wish we could. We may try. But look at the mess at the southern border that no one seems to want to solve. The U.S. can't mean it. But Jesus means it when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The kingdoms of the world want, no, they need the best and the brightest. But of the church, of the citizens of the kingdom, the apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world and the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And who of those wanting to come into the church of Jesus Christ should the church turn away? Should she turn away the blind and the lame and the disabled? And the poor, should she turn away the uneducated or the needy because they would drain our resources? The ethics of the kingdom of God are intrinsically incompatible with the kingdoms of the world. And a nation endeavoring to set itself up as the kingdom must either blaspheme by twisting the Bible and ignoring the parts of it and emphasizing others, or it must commit geopolitical suicide. Only the church is the holy nation. 
the people of God's own possession. Only the church is the blessed nation whose God is the Lord. The church is made up of the citizens of the kingdom of God, and God has placed his church in perpetual exile until the end of the age to be a sign of that kingdom. And the life of her subjects is to match the character of the kingdom. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all the glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. The life of the kingdom's subjects must match the character of the kingdom. The the life that you have been given in Christ is an imperishable life. You've been born again. Not of seed that's perishable, but of imperishable. And it matches the inheritance that you've been given, which is imperishable and unfading. Because the kingdom that you are a part of is imperishable. Throughout history, there have been nations and entities that have claimed in some sense to be the kingdom of God, but the simple test is this. If that entity or nation is changeable, if it is subject to corruption, if it is possible for it to perish or to be destroyed, it is not the kingdom of God. And those who are citizens only of the kingdoms of this world, well, their life matches the character of those kingdoms. Their lives are corruptible perishable, decaying, dying. That's the only kingdom you've ever lived in or the only kingdom you've ever lived for, the only kingdom you know, I want to invite you to come to King Jesus and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Because you, Church of Jesus Christ, are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, you are God's special possession, so that you may declare the excellencies of him who brought you out of darkness into his wonderful life. We are in exile in Babylon. We've been put here in part to declare the excellencies of him who brought us into the light that we can invite whosoever will to come into this kingdom, not of this world, which has no immigration limit. It's not subject to change or decay. We can't overwhelm its resources. It will last forever. So what's the relationship between the kingdom and the church and the world? The world has never been the kingdom, and it never will be. Because you live here in exile, Babylon can come under the influence of the kingdom. It may for a time become a better version of itself, but Babylon will always be Babylon. The world will always be the world. 
And we are called to live by the ethics of a kingdom not of this world. Here in Babylon to be a sign to point to that kingdom. The ethics of the kingdom start with the command to love one another. With bonds of the blood of Christ that cross all national and ethnic and political lines. We're about to partake of the Lord's Supper. The Westminster Confession of Faith insightfully says of that supper, Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood, called the Lord's Supper, to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself and his death, the sealing of all benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his body. The bread and the wine are not the body and the blood of Christ, but they're a sign of it. They may be sacramentally called the body and blood of the Lord. For they really bring us to Christ when we eat in faith. The church herself is not the kingdom of God, but she may sacramentally be called the kingdom of God. For as she lives in the world as God has called her to, she is a sign of that kingdom that is coming. And she really brings into that kingdom those who come in faith. Will our elders come and distribute the elements of the name of God?